y'all. Welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. In today's episode, I chat with Kate Lever, journalist, speaker, and author of The Friendship Cure. This fascinating book explores a wide range of topics related to friendships, including why the term bromance is used today, whether men and women can really be friends, as well as why some friendships lead to breakups. I learned so much from Kate's book. It is a beautiful guide for the modern friendship and teaches us that although there can be ups and downs in the friendship, there's a lot to treasure about these bonds as well. I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. So I'm really excited to record an episode today with Kate Lever, the best-selling author of The Friendship Cure. You and I met on Twitter, and in your book you have a chapter about friendships on the internet, so we'll go into that in a minute, but I would love for those, the few that haven't read your book yet, if you could just give a brief synopsis of what The Friendship Cure is about. Of course. So The Friendship Cure is basically a celebration of friendship, but also what I think is a timely and much needed reminder of how important it is, particularly given we're living in an age of loneliness. So it's essentially a manifesto on the beauty and importance and power of friendship. And why is it so important to have a book like yours out right now? I think we're living in an age of loneliness. I think experts are referring to it as an epidemic of loneliness. That's how common loneliness and social isolation are. I mean, there are nine million people in the UK alone who say they are always or often lonely. Um, So it's just staggering and there's more research coming in every day to explain how detrimental it is for our mental and our physical health. So I think it's really important to be talking about what I see as the most obvious solution, and that is for us to relearn and reconsider and redefine what friendship means to us and how we interact with each other in a meaningful way. That seems quite a a large number, and I think that what's really nice, what you've done here in this book, is you've addressed all the different elements and all the different angles of what makes up a friendship. And I think that it doesn't matter if you have millions of friends or if you have you know, one really close friend that you look to every day. I think that your book is so accessible to everybody that picks it up. So it's, it's just such a lovely book. I really, oh, really enjoyed you. it. Thank um, you. Kind of looking at the, the process of writing this book, I've, I've always wondered, and I, and I have asked authors when I can about this, but how did you come up with the title, The Friendship Cure? Well, actually, interestingly, I didn't. I can't claim the credit for that. <laughs> um, it was in. It was actually uh, well before the book was even started. I was having a conversation with my former agent, Robin Drury, but she actually came up with it. We were talking about the type of book I wanted to write and whether it was a sort of blend of pop science and memoir um, and journalism. And she kind of said, you know, something along the lines of the friendship cure. And in that moment, it sort of sounded to me like a real book. And so we just called it that on the proposal and then it just stayed that way throughout the whole publishing process. And to me, it sums up what I wanted to say, and that is that the curative qualities of friendship are really important right now. Couldn't agree more. And, you know, you say in the book that every time we interact with someone new, we work out whether we want that person in our lives. And if we do want them in our lives, at what capacity do we want them in our lives? I mean, what does that actually mean? Like, how many capacities do we or should we have when it comes to friendship? Such an interesting question. Ever since I was little, I've kind of 
spent a lot of time thinking about the nature of friendships and why we choose the people we choose to be in our lives because it's an important decision. I mean, we put a lot, we invest a lot of time and energy into choosing our romantic partner. I don't think we're quite as strategic about choosing who is in our life in a friendship capacity. But when you say how many different capacities, I guess it's infinite and different for each person. But I like to think of friends in the best case scenario as reflecting different aspects or corners of our personality. So true. So I like to think you should have someone, I mean for me it's really important for me to have someone who brings out my ambition. Really important for, to have someone who calls me out when they think I'm not doing something right. Really important to have someone who reflects my kind of childish enthusiasm in the world and joy and delight. Someone who makes me laugh, someone who makes me want to be a better person. So someone who sort of just I guess plays those different roles in my life and I guess you have the ultimate friendship scenario when you feel as though you have a complete lineup of people to complete that it's really interesting I think when you maybe go out to a social function or you gather those different friends into one space and then you you look at them all interact with each other and maybe they've met maybe they haven't because sometimes we have friends that are in a different you know mm. circle or whatever and then and then maybe they come together for a birthday or something yeah, like that birthday. yeah and you look around and you're just like oh wow, that friend really encompasses that aspect of my life or that capacity, as you were, you were just saying, and these people bring different things to the table. It really yeah. is interesting, isn't it? Well, I love birthdays for that reason. You get to force all your friends to be together <laughs> and they all have to be nice to one another for one evening in the year. But I also think we have so many different versions of ourselves. You know, I've got work Kate and home Kate and romantic Kate and friendship Kate. And I think the beauty of having a sort of diverse range of different people in your, in your friendship circle who you may bring together for one evening on your birthday or you may not, is that it allows you and gives you permission to be a multifaceted human being. And I think that's really important. Is it okay not to have a best friend? That's such an interesting title to me, a best friend. I mean, what does that actually mean to be a quote-unquote best friend? Um, first of all, I think it's perfectly fine to not have what something that you would call a best friend. I, I mean, I think a lot of people think of the term as of best friend as being quite childish and something that we should potentially leave in the playground or in our school day. It can be quite a juvenile term that a lot of young people use. But I guess I use the term best friend and I use the term best friend for a number of different people in my life because sometimes I feel as though the word friend is not powerful enough to mm. describe how much I adore a human I know being. Mean, yeah. so, so my closest friends in the world, some of my closest girlfriends, I love them so powerfully I feel like I can't properly convey it unless I give them that qualifier of best friend with the best intentions I feel like that's what people are doing best friend they're trying their best to articulate how close that person is to them and potentially teenage girls might use the term best friend to exclude other people and having a best friend is a is a lovely thing or multiple best friends or no best friend it's mm. kind of a casual term to me but it's also one that allows me to just talk about how ferociously I love someone in my life I think that's a really nice way of putting it and you can say to someone when you're a young kid or you know in your teen teenagers you're my best friend and it's kind of accepted and it's it's quite a a meaningful thing not that being a best friend as an adult isn't but you know you have the charms you have the necklaces mm -hmm. you know I remember having a best friend when I was younger and we had the the hearts that completed each other one yeah. had best and one had friend and I think now like you said it's it's a much more evolved meaning it's much more developed meaning because hopefully those best friends are whenever they entered your life whether it was when you were a kid or you know maybe last year it is quite a powerful 
role to play is to be yeah. a best friend, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But having said all of that, I would never want anyone to feel as though they were somehow inferior or incomplete because they don't have someone that they can label best friend. Yeah. I think it's, you know, a term that we can use when we want to be really <laughs> emphatic about something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think going into the different parts in your book, the one thing that, that really flagged up to me was I just loved the scene so much in your book about the girls on the tube and how they're, you were observing these girls on the tube and they were braiding each other's hair. And you described it as kind of chimpanzees, kind of, <laughs> kind of how they come quite closely together to, to groom each other and how it's quite a personal thing. And at that age and that teenage aspect of your life, you do hold on to those friendships so strongly and, and everything is you know forever. And why do you think these adolescents and teenage years leave such a lasting impression for us even into adulthood? Well, I think our, for most people, our adolescence as a general period in our life leaves a lasting impression because I think we're caught between childhood and adulthood and it's a very tender time for a lot of people, a very raw time emotionally when we're trying to work out who we are in the world and who we want to be. And we have kind of enough brain development to be thinking about the kind of adult we want to become. But, you know, the frontal lobe of our brain is not fully developed, so we can't make sophisticated emotional decisions like we do when we're slightly older. So we're kind of caught in this limbo between being a young person and being the person we're going to be when we get older. So I think any friendship that you make during that time has the potential to be extremely formative. I think we carry a lot of the scars from cruelty that's that happens in those Absolutely. years. And I think in the same way, I think people can lift us up and help us become the people we want to be. So I think it's an incredibly influential stage for friends. I, I speak obviously as a woman, so I, I, knew, I know anyone who knows what it's like to be a teenage girl knows that it can be a really volatile time. There's sort of the fragility of being a woman, the inconvenience of being a woman. You're discovering what it means to be an almost adult woman. And you need allies during that time. But a lot of the time, teenage girls in particular use gossip as a currency and it's sort of exchanging rumors and confidences that can get quite nasty on the flip side obviously there are wonderful relationships to be made at that time yeah and I think it has such a lasting impact on our adult lives because it is such a strange delicate time for most of us I mean there are people who sail through adolescence and for that I congratulate them and I would we love know, to well meet done. those people <laughs> but for a lot of people it's a difficult time you know you've got hormones you've got mm thoughts that you're developing you've got opinions you're making you're learning you, you haven't finished growing now you know either physically or mentally psychologically so to have friends during that period is extremely important yeah and of course you're going through all these firsts with each other as well I would say that junior high was probably the most awkward phase because you're not quite a woman you're not a child anymore the ages of 13 and 14 were Hmm. traumatic because yeah. you're, you're going through so many things reflecting inwardly on how is this going to work out how is this going to turn out and then you're looking to your friends to see if they've gone through the same experiences but also you want to have those experiences for yourself as well so as we get into the older years some of those friendships kind of fall by the wayside or you know you move on and you go down different paths and I thought it was really interesting that you explain in your book that experts have capped the number of friendships at 150 mm. I thought that was a really interesting number and then the breakdown is you know you have 100 acquaintances you 
have maybe like 10 close friends and you explain that our brains just aren't capable of having infinite friendships but you know why 150 it just seems like quite a rounded number and you know how do we prioritize those temporary versus forever friendships so uh, that research you're talking about yeah. is by an evolutionary psychologist at Oxford University called Robin Dunbar, who is kind of, if you were looking for one, an authority on friendship studies. He's done a lot of, of research on it. And essentially, he got to that 150 number by looking at the size of our brains. He originally did it with chimps, and he looked at the size of a chimp's neocortex and linked it to how big their social group was. And he thought to himself one day, hmm, I wonder if this would work for human beings. <laughs> um, and as it turned out, it did. So it's a lot of complicated maths that I can't explain to you right now because <laughs> I'm not a mathematician. Um, but he used some fancy science and some fancy maths to work out that 150 is the number that our brains can manage. Mm. And when, when I say manage, um, and when he says manage, it's, it's sort of about time management, really, because we can only reach a certain level of intimacy with that many people and have fulfilling relationships with that many people and there are kind of concentric circles of intimacy so as you said there's an acquaintance level and a close friend level and then a very close friend level Mm. and you only have really five very close friends which I think is comforting and reassuring because it goes back to that old adage that if you have a handful of friends or if you can count your good friends on one hand then you're very lucky and I agree with that and science agrees with that. So yeah, you're going to have a spectrum of friendships that fall on the very close and then sort of span out until you get to acquaintance territory. And I think with regards to your question of how you balance those close friendships, those temporary friendships and those forever friendships, it's it's a deeply personal decision yeah, how you manage your friendship group. But I think definitely prioritizing that special five is a really important strategy for most people. And those are the people whose deaths would devastate you. Those are the people who you would go to in a crisis, the people you would phone if something went wrong, the people you would you know, borrow money from or sleep on their sofa mm. if you needed to. The people who make up the fabric of who you are. So they're really key and the whole sort of call to arms of my book is to really look after those people and really nurture and care for and invest in those relationships in a really big way and I don't think most of us are doing that adequately. From there you're talking about a group that make up your kind of social network so your idea of what's going on in the world, who's doing what, your way of forming opinions and understanding what's going on around you. So sort of keeping in touch with those people as much as possible. But it should be said that like <laughs> there shouldn't be too much pressure for you to keep in touch with all 150. Yeah. Certainly by the time you get to acquaintance territory and you're talking about people you you know would probably hang out with if you were in the same city or the same mm. bar or bumped into each other or maybe yeah. you see each other on birthdays if you have a particularly big party or maybe you invite them to your wedding but don't really hang out with them on mm. a regular basis. That's a lovely type of friendship to have, that kind of slightly more tenuous friendship. It can be lovely for our sense of self and our sense of what's going on in the world, but they're not necessarily the people we're going to have around all the time. So I guess if you have time to keep those people in your periphery and keep them, you know, I think it's really great if you can be strategic about using social media for keeping in touch with those people because you can kind of do it in a slightly vaguer, slightly more casual way, keeping them in your life but not feeling the pressure to sort of nurture them on a daily or even weekly basis. So I guess if you wanted to be quite strategic about it, you would rank how close you are to your friends in a very private way obviously not yeah. in a kind of <laughs> vicious way you're number 42 yeah. <laughs> you've been demoted yeah. you're down eight spots this week 
No, I'm not suggesting that. But I think it is important to understand how important people are to you and then therefore treat them accordingly. So the people who really make up the core of your universe, you know, take care of them and they will take care of you. And that's kind of the role of that sort of very close friendship group. Yeah, and that theme and advice is just interwoven throughout your book. And I think that's also what makes it so lovely is you can pick up your book and if you read any chapter, you don't necessarily have to start from the beginning, you can pick up any chapter, whether it be about nine to five husbands and work wives or it be male and female friendships. And even if you, you have so many great case studies in here and you have so many great people who have told their story alongside your story and you can you can read it and you can say, you know what, I might not have been a friend to that person that you're talking about or I might not have been in that situation, but I know exactly what you're talking about. I've, I've interacted with those people, I know those people. And it really kind of brings on to the different types of, of friendships and, and I have to bring up uh, bromances. Apparently you say in your book that it was coined in the 90s. I feel like it's only been in the last 10 years that I've kind of heard someone refer to a bromance and because we don't really have a term like that for women. This is just given to men and why do we need to have that? Is it, Do we need to label male friendships to understand it better? Yeah, well, I think it's interesting, the fact that we have a label for close male friendship. And I think it actually, interestingly enough, I think it speaks to our discomfort with male intimacy. A lot of men I spoke to, and certainly a lot of men who've written about friendships and spoken to experts about friendships, have a certain awkwardness around being close to other men. And a lot of it is tinged with homophobia because they're frightened about coming on too strong and being misinterpreted as being gay. Or that even the concept of being close with another man is interpreted as being gay. There's a lot of people, there was an expert I spoke to who um, interviewed a lot of men about their friendships and a huge percentage of them would feel that they needed to give a disclaimer before they spoke about how close they were with their male friends and say, but I'm not gay. In the book, I speak about that song from Scrubs between Turk and JD. <laughs> of course. And of course, they, they have the, one of the more beautiful bromances of all time. And in that song, there's a lot of references to not being gay as well. And I think they're making fun of that concept. Um, but there are a lot of men who are frightened of male intimacy. And I think the term bromance is allowing us to talk about the intimate relationships between men in a safe way because bromance is a funny term, you know, it's a bit of a pun. It's culturally accepted. Yeah, yeah, it's an acceptable safe way for us to be able to say these two men are very very close to one another. They care about one another. I mean, one of the one of the funniest case studies I had for this book were these two men who came to me. I did a, a shout out on Twitter and said, "Look, if you if you're a man and you have a really close male friend, do you want to talk to me about it?" And this guy came to me and he said, listen, Kate, like two men have never loved each other more than, you know, than my mate and I in the past fallen asleep in each other's arms on the beach at sunset. There was a competitive element to his friendship. He wanted me to know that it was the greatest bromance of all time. That's so lovely. Which to me is really funny because it's also quite a traditionally male approach to it to need to be the most intimate male friendship yeah so I think it's interesting I think basically men are still grappling with how to speak about and enact intimacy with one another and I think the invention of the term bromance is allowing us to do it in a jovial way in a way that feels safe I think it's been really interesting I think it's a useful term I think 
there are some beautiful bromances in the world. I mean, Joe Biden and Barack Obama oh, are one of love my it. favorite examples. Love it. The Sirs, so Ian McKellen and Sir Patrick Stewart. There's a lot of lovely bromances, and it becomes quite a good shortcut for just saying these guys really care about each other. So I'm pro bromance as far as the term goes. The video of Obama giving Biden. The, the medal, medal of, <sighs> just makes me cry every time. I know, like he has made them cry, which I think he's is trying to hold it together. But you can totally tell that he's just absolutely welling up and has no qualms about it. And they're just so lovely to each other. And then when he wishes Biden happy birthday, to, you know, to to my best friend Joe Biden, and it's just it's such a lovely thing to have. Yeah. And I think that's that's just really nice. And it really segues into my favorite chapter of the book. I probably shouldn't say that. I love the whole book, but <laughs> my favorite chapter of the book is around male and female friendships because you can't think or talk about male and female friendships without thinking of When Harry Met Sally, which is by far one of my favorite films. It's just absolutely fantastic. I love. Nora Ephron, I love mm. Carrie Fisher and, and Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal in that film. And it's an interesting concept. The film was made in the 80s, so it's it's been 30 some odd years. You do say it in the book, but just, just tell us, can men and women really be friends? Uh, yes, I think the answer is definitely emphatically yes. And I wonder at how often we have to ask ourselves this question. I and mean, I don't think we sort of comprehensively answered it even in 10 seasons of the TV show Friends. It's interesting you bring up Harry Met Sally. I also adore that movie, but I'm a bit of a Grinch about it. I kind of wish they didn't end up together in the end. Oh, that's interesting. Um, you know, I, I love a happy ending. I love a rom-com. I love Nora Ephron with all of my heart. But I think... All throughout that movie, we had this beautiful story of a male and female friendship. And they hung out together. They spoke on the phone. They were on the landline, of course, (laughs) because it was the 80s. Um, And they developed this really quite lovely friendship. And then sort of towards the end of the movie, it morphed into a romance. And ultimately, I mean, I think we're past the point of spoiler alerts. Yeah, they do end up definitely, definitely haven't seen it. Yes. Um, But I think we even had a good story about them kind of sleeping together and then having to negotiate a friendship after that happens. And I sort of wish because we don't have many of those stories, I sort of wish it had become a romantic comedy about what to do when you sleep with your best friend and how to salvage the friendship. Um, It could have been this beautiful sort of love story to the idea of a male and female friendship. Instead, we got a a beautiful romantic comedy. So I'm not complaining too much, but I do wish that in popular culture we had more representations of genuine friendship between men and women because there are still people who think that it's not possible, which Mm. to me is outrageous. Without strings attached. Yeah, without one or the other fancying or falling in love with the other. Um, You know, of course, relationships between human beings, particularly where sexual chemistry is concerned, can be very complicated. And particularly if one member of a friendship is in love with the other, and there are definitely people I spoke to who were, it can be painful and delicate and really complicated. But I think it's entirely possible and, in fact, kind of wonderful when men and women do pursue friendships with one another. There's no evolutionary reason for it. I spoke to evolutionary psychologists. There's no reason for us to be friends with the opposite gender if you're going to read into evolution as a sign of the way we should behave as human beings, which I think you should do in a limited kind of sense anyway. (laughs) But so I sort of think of men and women who are friends as these beautiful evolutionary renegades who decide to be friends despite not needing a, a sort of survival instinct reason to do so. So I'm a big supporter of it. I have some male friends who I adore and I can't imagine my life without them. Um, And I would be frankly sad 
if someone went throughout throughout their lives without having a friend, a close friend of the opposite sex. No, I completely agree. And because in a way, looking reflectively back at, at the ending, I love it for what it is. But do you think that audiences would have been perhaps not disappointed, but a bit like, wow, no happy ending if it had just kind of ended on the friendship? Oh, yeah, I think there would have been protests. There would have yeah. been think pieces all over the internet. Yeah. Um, well, if the well, internet was around yeah. the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I think people would have really objected to the fact that there wasn't a happy ending. Yeah. But then I think it would have been really brave for a storyteller to end on that note and to say, you know what? A friendship is a complete relationship and a narrative into a romantic ending. And that's also a good point as well because I have friends who have their own set of friends and some of them are male and some of them are female and they are nervous about the possibility of that friendship being ruined Mm. if they decide to date because from an evolutionary standpoint we and you say it very much so we're social animals and if you get on well with somebody it's inevitable that you're going to develop a stronger sense of friendship, a stronger sense of that relationship. And sometimes, naturally, that does end up being love. It does end up being attraction. And, and, you know, sometimes you can't help it. But the worry is that when you care about that person so much, and I... I find that couples who start as really good friends are just so great because you have that that base, that friendship that kind of started it all. And you love each other warts and all and everything. And people do worry, though, that it could end up losing that friendship forever, doesn't it? It's, it's almost like you don't try or you, you try to force it from not happening because you don't want to lose that person. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I'm very pro-romance. I think romantic love is a beautiful thing. I have it in my life at the moment and it's it's a it's a wonderful thing. I would never dissuade anyone from that. And and also, you know, interestingly enough, I don't necessarily think you have to lose or sacrifice the friendship every time you try something romantic. I think it's possible to try something romantic with someone, have it fail and then continue to be friends. I think if it means enough to you, you can salvage and protect that friendship that you had originally oh failure that's just a horrible thing isn't it nobody <laughs> wants to fail but sometimes it can can make you a better person can oh, make yeah. you stronger sometimes can it? So. it can be a really beautiful thing to be I, honest I completely agree kind of going in a different direction to work wives and nine-to-five husbands that you have that chapter in your book so as somebody who has a nine-to-five job I obviously can very much relate to this chapter and I was nodding profusely as I was you know reading through it for people like me who have that nine-to-five job you do sometimes see your colleagues more than you see your loved ones, your family. Is the office relationship, is that the way of the future as people start working more and more? Is it, is it a good or bad thing? What, what What is it really? Well, I have a couple of thoughts on this. The first is I think corporate culture, corporate nine to five, or probably more accurately, you know, six to ten. Yeah. By the time you take yeah. into account how, <laughs> how, how long we spend on our phones during the day answering and emails and stuff. I think it's broken. I think corporate culture is broken. I think we have allowed our work lives to seep into too much of our personal lives. I think it has taken over and kind of consumed us in a way that is potentially extremely unhealthy. Well, not even potentially, definitely extremely unhealthy. We're seeing sort of burnout and stress and mental health issues in the workplace around the world. So first of all, I don't agree that we should be spending as much time as we do at work. But given that we are, I think our best survival tactic is to have personal relationships in the workplace. Now, this is something that a lot of baby boomers are averse to. They think that they have to come to a workplace with a sort of 
dignity and decorum and stoicism and keep their private life at home. But the reality is that we can't keep our private life at home because our entire life is our work life in a lot of situations. So the, the best possible thing we can do for our health is learn to be friendly, be candid, be intimate, be vulnerable around the people we work with and allow ourselves to be full versions of ourselves at work. And I think it's a beautiful thing when you can be friends with someone you work with. I've had some extraordinary friendships from previous jobs that I've worked in. I'm freelance at the moment, so I'm kind of hyper aware of needing to put friendships in place as a strategic thing for me, for my own sort of social well-being. But when I've worked in offices in the past, I've met some wonderful men and women who have continued to be my close friends after we've stopped working together. Oh, that's great. Um, and I think, you know, our work wives I think the, and husbands, I think the fact that we call them work wives and husbands um, is indicative of just how close they can be, but also how much spent time we spend with them. And as you say, you can end up spending more time with your work friends than or work enemies for that matter, work <laughs> colleagues. They're both. Um, than you do with with your partner or with your family or with your children. And first of all, I think that's potentially sad. Second of all, I think it's all the more reason to become friends with the people you work with. Yeah, so it's a good and bad thing. (laughs) Yes. It can can be both. To to answer your question, yes, I think it's entirely up to you really whether you make it into a good or bad thing. Yeah, and sometimes there's in real life relationships, as, as you say in your book, really seep into different aspects of our lives and You know, for me, I find social media to be both a positive and negative thing in the sense that I can sometimes be up way too late looking at, you know, people's Instagram feeds and things like that. But at the same time, I've met some some wonderful people, yourself included, on Twitter and Instagram. And you have a dedicated chapter, chapter seven, on internet friends and why they're so important. And it would be really great if you could just explain why these friendships maybe are not this, they're not the same as having real life friendships. However, they are, or they can be rather, just as important. It'd be great if you could just talk through that. Yeah, of course. I think it's really interesting that we use the term in real life to talk about face-to-face interaction because actually our real lives are online as well. We have our face-to-face interaction and then we have our online interaction. And I think it's time we considered them equal, that we consider that the type of person we are online and the person we present ourselves to the world as on social media they're valid versions of who we are and therefore the communication we have with other human beings in a technological sense is just as valid as any other kind of communication now of course i would never recommend that someone only exclusively have online communication with other human beings i think that would be an unhealthy existence but i think we need a sort of dynamic mix of speaking to people in person when you can exchange pheromones and exchange eye contact and exchange gestures of affection. Mm. I think that's really important for us evolutionarily, psychologically. But I think it's increasingly important for us to have close friendships online. And I think, again, it's perhaps a generational thing. I think, you know, I was born a couple of years before the internet was invented. So I've grown up understanding that a part of me exists online and that's just natural to me perhaps to my parents it's a bit of a foreign concept Mm -hmm. this idea that you might have a genuine friendship online with someone and perhaps it's even bizarre to people of different generations that you might meet someone online and become friends before you even meet in person 
And that has like happened we did. like we did exactly. Yeah. And that's happened to me a number of times, particularly since I moved to London from Sydney. I used Twitter as a really effective way of meeting new people. I sort of would find other female journalists living in London and talk to them online end up direct messaging them and that could lead to coffee it could lead to a story it could lead to an ongoing friendship as it has and that has been a really important way for me to make friends in a new city and I think there are so many other groups of people that it benefits I mean I think social media and technology has the potential to be a fantastic friendship making tool for everyone but particularly if you think about people who are introverts people who live with a disability people who find it difficult to leave the house for whatever reason, people with autism, people with social anxiety, Mm. all these groups of people can use social media in a safe way, as a safe space to interact with people that they might not otherwise get the chance to interact with. Yeah, absolutely. So I think if we're using it intelligently and sensitively and tactfully, it can be a wonderful tool for making friends. And those friendships can be just as lasting as the ones that you've had since you were five. You yeah. know, so it's it's what's really great about your book is everyone that reads it can understand that friendships can come in all different packages, all different sizes. They can come from different formats so to speak you know either in real life or or on the internet and that is a good thing and that's and I'm not going to say normal as in like it's normal because kind of subjective word but it's it's okay to have friendships from those from those different aspects but there are also times when you look at a friendship and you think to yourself you know what that is just not working for me anymore it's not healthy I'm I don't like who I am around that person and that ultimately leads to friendship breakups and they are so hard. I've experienced them. I actually emailed you about a friendship yeah. breakup that I had that was really hard. And it's not always easy, like in romantic relationships as well, to to see those signs and, and to accept them because you're so comfortable and you've perhaps known that person for a long time. And if you could kind of chat with me about what those signs look like and, and when it's time to kind of rethink that person being in your life and how do you handle that interaction? How do you handle that conversation? I mean, I think the very first thing is to trust your gut instinct. I think with friendships, like any other relationship, whether it's with a family member or a lover, a romantic partner, I think your gut tells you when something's wrong. And I think in a friendship scenario, we know something's wrong, but we're not as willing or as comfortable to act on it as we are in other scenarios. I think we haven't developed the language or the protocol for what to do when we know that a friendship should no longer be in our lives. And I think a lot of us are not honest with ourselves about when someone doesn't belong in our lives anymore. So I think that's the first step. Trust your gut instinct. The second one, be honest with yourself about who belongs sort of around you. From there, I think you need to work out just how diabolical it is. So I think we exist on a spectrum of friendship breakup potential. And I think you have to work out, first of all, if you're in a toxic friendship. If you're in a toxic friendship, it's similar to a toxic relationship. You're looking for signs of emotional abuse. You're looking, for instance, for someone who gives you great gestures of affection and love and then withdraws that affection and love. Someone who's hot and cold. Someone who has a sort of power play dynamic with you. Someone who wants to control you. Someone who wants to isolate you from your other friends and loved ones. Someone who kind of plans extravagant dates but gets very very angry when you don't want to go on them all that sort of taunting coercive behavior that can happen in a friendship and if you're dealing with someone who is toxic in that way then you need to work out how to safely and cleanly extricate yourself from that you might want to do it with the help of a close friend a family member even a therapist 
And in that situation, it can be safest to cease contact completely to avoid the drama of a confrontation. In any other lesser situation, a less sinister situation, because there are so many friendships where no one isn't necessarily at fault, it just sort of... Fizzles out. Fizzles out, exactly. And you know something's wrong, and potentially nobody has done any one single bad thing, Mm. but you just know that you don't belong together in a friendship anymore. In that case... It's really difficult. I think there are some that can mutually drift apart. Mm -hmm. And I think in some cases it can be healthy to allow a friendship to just drift until it no longer exists if there's no mutual hurt. Mm -hmm. But to be honest, I think the most respectful and healthy thing to do in that situation is to address it and to have a breakup speech like you would in a romantic relationship Mm -hmm. and to talk to someone about why you're ending a friendship. And that can be extremely difficult because confrontation is terrifying for most people. And it can be difficult to articulate and difficult to say to someone's face. And in that case, I would recommend, you know, if you can't do it face to face, send them an email. Give them the courtesy of really thinking through and talking through what went wrong in the friendship. Or at the very, very least, I think, give them a short explanation or some sort of warning that the friendship is over. And that brings me to the topic of ghosting, because I think the alternative to a friendship breakup is ghosting. And when I say ghosting, I mean just ending the friendship without any warning and just abruptly ceasing contact without any explanation whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I think it's a particularly cruel thing to do to someone. It's happened to me since I wrote the book, weirdly enough. A very close friend of mine just completely ceased contact after I sent her quite a personal message, and I haven't heard from her in over a year. And that was extremely painful for me because it meant that I tormented myself wondering what I'd done wrong and what was fundamentally wrong with me rather than having a short explanation as to why she felt we didn't, you know, go together anymore. So I think we kind of, if you've been in a, especially if you've been in a friendship for a long period of time, you owe the other person some semblance of an explanation. Yeah. And I think it depends on how long you've been friends with that person. Because that's obviously going, it's not a one size fits all. It's not a, here's how you should do it. And and it's not looking for, you know, not Googling how to break up a friendship. It's it's not looking for those answers per se. It's about trusting your gut, like you said, and knowing how that friendship is is going to best go go forward and and perhaps in some ways it's dependent on how you met that person as well so if you met that person at camp when you were six years old you know obviously you're probably gonna have a conversation with them in person if you've met that person on the internet perhaps you're gonna you know send them a a tweet or well maybe not like a public tweet but you know send them a dm (laughs) and just say hey you know we need to talk and and sometimes those relationships can be mended in ways in terms of you can just have that chat with somebody and just kind of alter that friendship perhaps or let them know hey this isn't working or you know in fact I mean it it doesn't have to end does it yeah yeah and lovely that you brought that up I mean one of the people I spoke to for the book um who had fallen out with her close friend and they had broken their friendship um actually got in touch with me after the book was published to say that she had been invited to that friend's wedding and they'd found a way to be friends oh again, that's wonderful which is really lovely yeah and of that course, is lovely. entirely possible of course but having a chat about it would be so helpful and productive yeah. and of course as i said there are so many different types of friendships and many of them can quite naturally I mean I've had friendships of mine speaking of childhood friendships I've had childhood friendships and long legacy friendships like that kind of end without ceremony and we both kind of have an unspoken agreement not to really hang out anymore Mm -hmm. I think that's perfectly fine and natural but you have to sort of be quite 
brutally honest with yourself about the nature of your relationship and if it's a really deeply invested one and something went wrong I think you need to hash it out but sometimes you have a different version of that friendship than that other person has Mm. and that kind of brings me to that story that I emailed you about where you know I had this friend in college and we were you know thick as thieves and it was interesting how as we moved away after college and we tried to stay in touch more being you know distance apart instead of being around each other all the time that certain things started to come out of the woodwork that didn't necessarily happen when we were together all the time and and sometimes distance can be the the killing factor to be honest but it's also about accepting that you know what if a friendship does and it's not as you said it's not particularly any one person's fault it's it's just sometimes those, those things happen but what's great is you can then say but I have these really fantastic friendships over here that I can celebrate, that we can enjoy, and and I have that group of friends to, to get me through this. So that's that's really good. Kind of moving us on to the final question, mm-hmm. which is essentially the premise of this podcast, which is to place your book on a shelf, so to speak. And I would love to hear from you which other authors, which other books you would place on that shelf alongside your book, Great Literature, Frozen in Time, authors that have inspired you, books that have inspired you. I would love for you to talk through that. I love this question, particularly because, I mean, these days, recently, I reorganized my bookshelf so that it's color coordinated. I love that. You should all go onto Kate's Instagram and look at it. (laughs) (laughs) But the way I originally organized my bookshelf was like a dinner party, and I would put authors next to one another that I thought would like each other. I love that. Um, So I've I've given it a lot of thought as to who I would like to sit next to. And I come back to the, the same two authors each time to be honest, both alive, both contemporary authors, both primarily non-fiction authors. I, my first choice would be John Ronson. He is the love of my literary life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he is my inspiration and I think he does flawless non-fiction. My favourite book of his is The Psychopath Test. I think it's perfect in every way. <laughs> um, so he would be to my right uh, or to the right of my book. To the left, I would put Anna Funder. Um, she was she grew up in Australia. Um, she wrote this beautiful book called All That I Am, which was a sort of fictionalized true story, a war story, which was just amazing. But she also wrote a book about spending a year in Berlin, and but she wrote it like a novel. It was lyrical and emotionally beautiful, mm. and just again, I find it to be flawless writing. And those two writers are the two writers I hold in my mind as inspiration. I guess I just wish I were able to be a fraction as good as they are. And I reread both of those books regularly and the rest of their other books. And I just admire them more than I can say. So if I could choose two, one on each side, those those would be mine. Those are great choices. And I think it's really nice how you've just described what kind of aspects of those books really resonate with you and it's such a personal question and sometimes we have the same answers as other people but sometimes we don't and even though I might not know their works personally although now I want to read them (laughs) it's good to hear that those people have influenced you those people really touch you in terms of, of being a writer and I can say hand on heart that Kate's book is fantastic. It deserves to be up on the shelves with the best of them. And I highly encourage everyone to read this book. I know for a fact that, and I have actually since reading it all the way through for the first time that I will refer to this for many, many years to come because it's just such a, a beautiful 
swan song to I think that's a good way of putting it to to friendships and whether that's male or female whether that's male and male or whether that's female and female it definitely speaks to everyone so thank you so much for for coming and speaking with me it would be good for those who would like to get in touch with you to tell you how fabulous you are and how can they find you on the world wide web the easiest way is just katelever.com you'll find all my twitter and instagram handles on there and and some of my work as well so katelever.com Yes, and Kate writes brilliant features for Refinery29, Women's Health, The Pool, all kinds of different features. So definitely go check her out on there as well. Have to know anything in the works in terms of a second book? You know what? No, I'm actually giving myself a little time to come up with another idea and I'm thinking I might try fiction. Well, whatever it's going to be, it will be something brilliant just like you and we thank will you. be waiting with bated breath. So thank you so much, Kate, for coming on today. My absolute pleasure. And thank you everyone needs to read The Friendship Cure. It is without a doubt one of the best books that I've read of recent and I'm just so glad that we were able to talk about it today. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thanks for listening to this episode of Shelf Life. I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it either on Twitter or Instagram or by leaving a review on iTunes. Until next time, happy reading.